So before we planted Redstone Church, I was either on a campus or in camp ministry. Camp ministry was truly thrilling. You had these kids for six straight days. And part of the camp experience was to get them all into the same assembly and to preach God's word to them. And it was wonderful and it was good. You only had them for five nights. So you really had to kind of make the most of its time. So the camp that I was a part of, you, you had two nights to capture their attention, to give them some kind of glimpse as to who God is and potentially his pursuit of them in their life. And then on the third night, that's what we called gospel night. Gospel night was when we were able to stand up and declare boldly and clearly who Jesus is and what it takes to know God and to receive salvation. And it was wonderful. Uh, in my, the course of ministry, I've not just seen hundreds of people, but thousands of kids turn their life over to Jesus. And each and every story was wonderful and good with that moment in time when they gave their lives to Jesus. Before I was able to preach that sermon every single year on Tuesday nights, right? It was just kind of a mainstay. Before that sermon, I would gather our staff together. These are kids who had, uh, college kids who had uh, set apart 12 weeks of their summer to be on mission for him. And so before we preached the gospel, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we gave prayer requests of certain kids who did not know Jesus. And we prayed this prayer found in Luke chapter 19, that today, today would be the day of salvation for someone. And the, and the Lord, God so generously granted that prayer over and over and over again. But the problem with camp ministry, right, is that they go home in five days, six days, and you really don't know what happens to them. And so maybe it was an emotional decision. Maybe they just did it out of guilt or pressure or somebody else. You really, you had no idea what was to happen to any of those kids, really. And that's when uh, this past Christmas became very special to me personally. Uh, I haven't been in that ministry for 12 years now. And we had a little Airbnb that we rented out to others. And we had a guest, they were from Hawaii of all places, to stay with us for two months. And so we were able to engage with them quite a bit. And so we're like, Hawaii, what are you doing in Hawaii? Well, they're scoping out East Tennessee as to maybe a potential place to move them and their family. Before they left Hawaii, they had made a couple of connections. A friend here, maybe a family member there who knew some people in East Tennessee. And so in one of those calls back to Hawaii, they're like, so how's the place? We're like, oh, we're staying with a a cool family. Cool family, that was their word, my word, not theirs. Um, We're staying with this family. He's a minister. Um, He used to da-da-da-da. And they're like, oh, well, what's his name? And they're like, uh, their name is Spencer Nicole Teal. And they're like, you have got to be kidding me. And so staying in my Airbnb was a couple from Hawaii. And on the other side of the phone was a person in Hawaii. And he said to them, that guy, Spencer Till, led me to Christ when I was in high school. Whoa. I didn't even know his name, right? I don't even know if we ever met. But the story of salvation was preached one night under a big top in East Tennessee. And now he finds himself in Hawaii, not just believing in the gospel, but continuing to live out the gospel. 
The story of Zacchaeus, right? May just, we may know this story. It may be too familiar, but that's the point. That it's the moment of salvation for a soul to go from death to life, but then also a testimony of a life changed forever here and now. In verses one and two, you, we hear about Zacchaeus, right? We hear that he's a couple of things. First and foremost, we hear that he is short, right? And so from now on, there's no more short jokes, right? For those people who are elders, right? We can't help that we're under six feet tall. That's the way God made us. And that's just who it is. And it was a little embarrassing to stand in front or beside Zach Brown, who's about 14 feet tall and like, okay, so no more short jokes. So we know that he is short, right? But we also know that he's a tax collector. Not only a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector. And so what do we know even more about this guy? Is that he's not just rich. He is really, really rich. But how did he get there? Well, he lives in a province. We know that he's from Jericho. Jericho is one of the three biggest cities inside Jerusalem. And who is he taxing? He taxing he's taxing his fellow Jews for Rome. But that's because they're underneath uh, the power of Rome themselves. And so tax collectors and then the chief tax collectors, which is probably a pyramid scheme, a little bit like Amway or something like that. He was an extortionist, Right? And he was hated for that. See, his currency was off the backs and the brows of other countrymen. He was in Jericho. This is significant, right? This is Jesus' last stop before he goes into Jerusalem. He was a part of Jericho. Jericho was a rejected city. And here we find this man who was a rejected man inside of a rejected city for an occupation that was fully and complicit terrible. Think about the drug scene, right? I don't know if you've ever been in the drug scene, but it's just a scene, right? It's just the people group because either you buy or you sell or you distribute or you grow. But everybody who is in the drug scene is tainted by it. And it's looked on negatively. In the same way with a tax collector. Everything that they touched was negative. They were despised. So much so that in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you get two categories of people. Tax collectors and sinners. Meaning there's only two categories of sinful people. Tax collectors get their own category and sinners is a generic term. That's how bad they were and how they were looked down on. Everyone hated the tax collectors. And so how would Jesus associate with him? Would he push him away or would he draw close? How would Jesus deal with him? Well, we see in our passage that he doesn't just associate with him, but he invites himself into Zacchaeus's house. And this is strong language here. You're going to host me, Jesus says to Zacchaeus. And this idea of being a guest of someone is like an Airbnb. They come into your home, potentially eat your meal or eat your food. They use up their elect, your electricity, and they potentially stay overnight. Jesus is not just eating a meal. He's coming into this 
man's life. How would Jesus associate with a tax collector? By acting just like this. And that's because that's who Jesus is. Jesus acts like this because he came to offer salvation to sinners. He came to come alongside outsiders and outcasts and swindlers and offer them something that they could not offer themselves. That's what Jesus does. He seeks and he saves those who are lost, those who need healing, those who are far off, and he brings them near. In chapter 15, we have a parable, a parable of a lost sheep, a parable of a lost coin, and a parable of two lost sons. And those are fictional. A parable is just a story, meaning it never happened. And yet just a few short chapters later, what do we see? A parable becoming real life. Zacchaeus has a real name because he is truly lost. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, comes after him. Jesus' mission for planet Earth is to seek and to save that which is lost. And he can save you this morning. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, he too can save you. Are you far from Jesus? this morning. More importantly, do you think that you've done way too much in your life to disqualify you from Jesus's acceptance? Well, this story and how it unfolds is that no one is too far gone. You don't have to clean yourself up before Jesus can engage you. Instead, it's the opposite. There is no hopeless cause because we are all hopeless. We all need Jesus. This is the kingdom of God is that we are all outsiders and we have been made for the inside. That's why the glory of the Lord was shown to shepherds first and then Samaritans and then sons who were lost and now a tax collector because the people who were on the fringes actually find themselves at home with Jesus and Jesus alone. And verses three and four tells us that there are some problems in Zacchaeus' life, okay? And so it's not just about who he is, but the fact that there's gonna have to take some real effort to go from point A to B. First and foremost, what is that barrier? One is that he is short, right? The, The barrier is, hey, he is of small stature. And so between him and Jesus is this idea that he can't see Jesus. It's that simple. And so in order to solve this equation, what do we see? The first movement is he climbs up into a tree. The teaching point of here, Jesus is amazing in storytelling, is that this is a man who is fully dignified. He is wearing the best clothes because he's not just rich, he's really rich. And even though people can't stand him, they probably respect him because of his power and his prestige. And so where do we find Zacchaeus? Up in a tree. So the first barrier, right, is more than just eyesight. It's probably more in lines of dignity. 
he actually has to be pretty embarrassing to himself in order to go from point A to B. And so where do we find him scurrying up this tree like a little kid? I'm glad you thought that. Who climbs trees but kids, right? Because it's such a childish thing. No one would ever do such a thing, especially someone like the mayor, right? Um, mayor Brock, right? Do we know the mayor of, of Johnson City? All right, Miss Jenny Brock would never be up in a tree, much less uh, uh, Governor Bill Lee up into a tree playing hide and seek. Joe Biden, that'd be awesome though, right? If we saw these people of great stature up there, we'd be like, we would just giggle to ourselves like, that's weird, right? And so in some way, we're just kind of chuckling at Zacchaeus like, what are you doing up there, right? And it's a little bit of a chuckle line. Unless you're Zacchaeus. He had to get to Jesus. And so what did he do is he actually had to lay down his dignity in that moment. He had to lay it down because that's the price that had to be paid. This is a man with great wealth. And if you are of great wealth or statue, people hold their doors for you. Those doors are open wherever you go. There are people probably pushing away the crowd as you go into the city center you probably have a bouncer or a security guard next to you. But none of those people are in place today. He has to find his own way. And so the only way he can understand is through a tree. So that's a barrier, but also this crowd, right? The tiptoes wouldn't work. And I don't know if you've ever been to a concert or, or a sporting event where everybody is in the same kind of level and you're on like four rows deep and you can't just see over. This is exactly what's going on. Is the crowd is too deep because Jesus is too popular and he simply can not see. His vantage point was skewed. He simply could not see. I want to personally see Jesus, Zacchaeus says but I can't. The crowds are preventing that. There's a barrier there. There's a problem. And so what am I going to do? I can't see him. I'm glad that Jesus uses the word that he cannot see because he's using more than just our ability to see here. It's just that his heart was darkened, meaning that his whole world was darkened. Do you know what the story is right before Zacchaeus? It's the story of a blind beggar. Someone whose life had been darkened his whole life. And so back to back, we have two characters in the story of God who can not see. And they would do anything to see Jesus. They would do anything to see Jesus. So the crowds, right, create a barrier, but it's also a teaching point is what will it take? Is your heart desperate for Jesus this morning? Because you do need sight. You do need a beeline to be able to see Jesus. Jesus wants you to see him exactly who he is. He wants you to be able to focus 
on the goodness and the glory for exactly who he is. But it's more than Jesus, or more than Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus. Look at verse five. This is the the, the, the climax of our story because it's not just Zacchaeus doing all of the action. In fact, we actually see Jesus actually piercing through the crowds and coming to the base of a tree and actually speaking to Zacchaeus himself. So the first part of the story is Zacchaeus doing everything he can to see Jesus. Now we see Jesus parting through the crowds to be able to put his eyes on Zacchaeus himself. And this is great irony, isn't it? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but more importantly, more importantly, Jesus wants to see Zacchaeus. He wants to see you. This is our Savior. We want to potentially run and hide from his presence. We feel like we have done too much and feel too guilty. And yet we have a Savior who wants to put you and fix you in his gaze. It's Jesus who says, I want to stay at your house today. It's Jesus who stops in the middle of the road. It's Jesus who calls Zacchaeus by name. It's Jesus who uses an imperative, hurry down, get down, come here. This is the command of our Savior in Jesus. It's Jesus who wants to bring this message to him. Theologians call this effectual calling. And this effectual calling is that it is God's job. It's God's ability to open up our minds to help us to see him for who he is and then also open our hearts to see us for who we are. And in that moment, Zacchaeus both sees Jesus and sees himself in such clarity. It's as if, if, it's as, as if, as if he's been blind his whole life. He finally sees this divine seeking. The true seeker in this passage is not Zacchaeus. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes to seek and to save the lost. We want to be seeker sensitive, but we want to create an atmosphere where the Lord truly is seen seeking after his people over and over and over again. I'm coming to your house, Jesus says. I'm going to stay at your house, Jesus says. I'm going to become your guest, Jesus says. Because this is what he does. He goes to the outsider, like the Samaritan, and he says, I'm coming into your life. And that's what Jesus does. He goes to a woman who is in sexual sin. He says, I'm coming to know you and you alone. You are gonna have purpose and life and a name after this encounter. An older brother and a younger brother and an extortionist. And we could go on and on because that's what Luke wants to do. To say the outsider is now a part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because he himself is a Gentile. He himself is someone who's on the outside looking in, and yet he has found a place. The gospel tells us that it's Jesus who seeks after us. And that's the order of grace, really. That Jesus walks toward us and he invites himself into our home without us doing anything. Zacchaeus didn't have to clean up his life up at this point. 
he hasn't really said anything in our narrative. He certainly didn't have time to go home and get his affairs in order. And that's what grace does. It pursues sinners first. Salvation first, and then the change. There's change that's gonna come, but salvation first, and then change. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is the fact that once you have seen Jesus and seen yourself, you want to change, and he's gonna change forever. He's coming into our homes. He's coming into our living rooms. He's coming into our meal planning. He's coming for our pocketbooks. He's coming into our morning rituals. He's coming around our table. He's coming to influence our friendships and the things that influence us. That's what he wants. He wants to be in our home. Why? Because when he's home, he can also be our Lord. It's more than just a moment of salvation. Jesus wants to give us a perspective to see the whole world differently because he wants us to be on mission as well. And Zacchaeus, boy, oh boy, did he change. Salvation came to his house today. Salvation came to him, but boy, oh boy, did he change. Look at verses six and seven and eight and just feel the overflow of this man's life when he came in contact with the gospel itself. First and foremost, look at the emotion. He comes and he embraces him, how? Joyfully. Because this is exactly what we see in in chapter 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boys, what is surrounding them? Celebration and joy and goodness. It's a party. This is the realia, right? This is the party. This is the goodness because salvation does that to us. He receives him joyfully. It's wonderful. Salvation is so good for us. Not just that, but he says, behold, Lord, I want you to look. He's not blind anymore. He understands where we are to put all of our focus at good. Not only just emotional response, like joyfully and behold, but he also calls Jesus Lord, Savior and Lord. Both the Christ and the Messiah, but also the King who's able to give us edicts in which we are to follow. From day one, from moments one, Zacchaeus relinquished all sovereignty of his life and he calls Jesus Lord. That's the power of salvation. And that's how you know you are saved, is that you were living your life the way that you wanted to. And in a moment's change, you're able to relinquish that kind of control of your life to someone else. Jesus says, you are now a part of my family. You're now a part of the faith family. You are part of Abraham's family. So it's emotional. There's joy and behold, but also he's calling him Lord. And then lastly, you see true life change, don't you? He starts to do things with his life. He opens up his wallet. He starts doing things that no one would have ever expected from a tax collector, a chief tax collector, an extortionist. He starts acting counterintuitive to everything that he's been up to that point forward. And he starts giving away his money. But it's not about money, y'all. It was money for Zacchaeus, 
because that was his problem. But the money represented his identity. And on day one, he relinquished his full identity over to the Lord. Money was his savior. Money was his Lord. And now money became a vehicle for the kingdom and the kingdom's change. And that's what the heart change would actually look for. He goes, I am so sorry. And it says, if he looks to the crowd and he goes, I am so very sorry. I have cheated you and you and you. And I know you wanted to use that money for this, but I said, no, Rome's calling. You give it up now. I know that you begged me for another 30 day notice, but I said, no, give it now. And it's as if, it's as if Zacchaeus is looking to the crowd and saying, I'm so very sorry. I will pay you back. But then he looks at his bank account and he goes, look at all those zeros. And it's as if he's looking to the Lord and he's saying, I'm so very sorry. For I've used all of those dollars for myself and power and control and luxury. And I have not used that money for good. And so with the sin of omission and the sin of commission, but the thing that he did wrong and the thing that he did not do right, he said, I am so very sorry. And then it's when Jesus exclaims. It's when Jesus then gets onto a podium. It's as if he then gets up on a stage or in, in a tree because he has something to say at that moment. He says, today salvation has come to this household. That man was once lost and now he's been found. Today is the day of salvation. That's the power of salvation in our life. Because that's the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus is that you are walking this way, doing your own thing for yourself. And at some point in your life, Jesus came, woke you up, helped you to see the world and yourself a different way, and now your story is completely different. So what about you and your story this morning? Have you ever come in contact with Jesus? A moment of salvation where you relinquished everything and said, Lord, you will be mine today. What about you today? Historically, Luke doesn't do anything by accident. Nothing by accident. He's a physician. Crosses, T's, dots, eyes. He doesn't do anything by accident. This is the very last story of Jesus's earthly ministry in the gospel of Luke. The very next paragraph is Jesus's triumphal entry. Passion week is about to start meaning his ministry is over. And how does Luke want you and me to see Jesus's reign in ministry come to a close? Someone who was far off to be found. Someone who was lost to come home. Jesus came to seek and to save. How about you this morning? Are 
you lost? Do you need salvation to come into your home, to come into your life? We would encourage you to listen to Jesus's hearkening voice to you this morning. Come down and let me come to your house this morning. Open up your heart and open up your life and say, Lord, I believe. Let me pray for us. And so Lord, thank you for this picture of Zacchaeus' life. But more than that, thank you for the picture of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of our Savior. Our Savior who left heaven to come to earth. And then while he was on earth, continued to leave things behind and able to walk into people's lives and to change them forever. God, I pray desperately that this is the day of salvation for someone. Is there anyone in here that is far from Jesus who knows that if they were to die right now, that they would not have a relationship with you? And so what do you do? If you are in that place, we would encourage you to do just as Zacchaeus did and simply cry out and say, Lord, Lord, I receive you joyfully this morning. I receive you joyfully today because I now believe that I am lost by myself and I need you to give me purpose. I need you to make everything make sense in my life. And that's the power of Jesus who continues to seek and to save those who are lost by continuing during Passion Week and continuing to be led to a cross where he would die for your sins and mine in order to make things right between you and the Father. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. We pray that this morning is a great moment of relief relinquishing this morning. Cry out to the Lord this morning. So King Jesus, you are inviting us all to the table to remember a moment of salvation where we came squarely eye to eye with you and remember the day that we, we heard you call out our name. I pray that this is a moment of rejoicing for all of our brothers and sisters in here that as we remember you calling us by name, as we come to the table, as we partake of your body and your blood, help us remember that you have called us by name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. So that's what...